A man once went out and bought a new lawnmower, and he brought it home, and after opening the box, proceeded to assemble the machine. And as many of us know, the process of assembling these purchased items can be a pain in the neck. So by the time this guy got to the point of mounting the blade, he didn't need to encounter any more problems, yet no matter how hard he tried, he could not get that blade on the mower. Simply would not screw into the threaded shaft. After 20 minutes of frustrating effort and five more minutes of verbally abusing the mower's character, I mean, he even attacked the mower's mother. He finally broke down, dug out the instruction manual, and for the first time, <laughs> and the matter was simple. The shaft was a left-handed thread. He had the blade on in 30 seconds, and the mower was finally assembled. He never could figure out why, though, he had three extra parts left over. How many of us have set out to try to build something, to assemble something, and the first thing we do is set the instructions aside, assuming that we can figure it out as we go. Probably more men have done that than women. Amen. <laughs> Sometimes we can get lucky, we come out all right, but most of the time we end up frustrated and off track. A lot of well-meaning Christ followers, by the way, have done the same exact thing with the concept concepts of the scriptures, and especially in this area that we've been talking about uh, of giving. Many of us have brought home this package called stewardship, opened up the box, and have started to put it all together without ever really looking at the instruction manual. The common result is often frustration and confusion. But eventually, if we really are honest seekers of truth, we will come to the point where we need the questions answered. Questions like, how do I give? When do I give? How much should I give? Is tithing for today? How in the world can I give? Does God expect me to go without food and not pay the bills so I can say that I've given? Now, I'm sure most of you have asked all those questions and have struggled with the whole issue at some point, but realizing the importance of this issue as God forms us into the image of Christ demands that we get some answers. Giving displays the cutting edge of our Christian commitment, so we need to make sure that we're applying the blade, so to speak, correctly. And all it takes is a glance at the instruction manual. That's it. Like the guy with the lawnmower, if we're ever going to get the thing to work smoothly so that life becomes easier for us, we must default to the one who wrote the book on it. Amen? A healthy Christ follower growing to maturity in him will glorify God in his or her giving. This instruction manual right here, God's word of truth, gives us the guidelines to follow concerning that truth without fail. And the framework we've been studying for these guidelines have been found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we've been looking at Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. And uh, we're going to look at, just finish it up today. And we've also been looking at a host of other scriptures. I basically, in this midst of this series in Malachi, have taken this particular section and, and chosen to expand upon it and using the rest of the scriptures 
to kind of round out this study on what giving is. And the framework says that if we're going to glorify God in our practice of giving, then the first thing we need is to adopt the right attitude, the right mindset, get God's perspective. What is the right frame of mind to be in? In the first message in this series, we learned that everything we have belongs to God. Giving back to Him should be a priority and that giving generously and cheerfully is what God desires because of the irrational amounts of grace and mercy that God has given to us. Framework also says that if we're going to bring glory to God in our practice of giving, then we also need to understand the biblical purposes for it. Why do we give? And we talked about that. It provides support for the poor, produces sustenance for the leaders. It proves our love is sincere. It personifies the sacrifice of Jesus our Lord. But ultimately, bottom line, the most important purpose for giving is what? It's worship. It promotes the glory of God. Understanding the perspective is one thing. Knowing the purposes are great. But in the most basic level lies a foundational principle where the whole thing just either flies or it fumbles and it comes right down to doing it. And not just doing it, but doing it with everything that we have. If giving is truly a Christ-like concept, and it is, and we honestly desire to walk in vital union with Christ, how can we not do it? kind of giving that brings the most glory to God then must reflect the pattern that he laid out for us in the instruction book. And it's simply not the right mindset and the right motive that we need, but we need the right model. And we have it in the word of God. And I want to try to sketch it out for you this morning as we round up this little kind of mini thing on, on giving. First of all, the Bible says that giving is exceptionally Practical, exceptionally practical. If you're already in Malachi chapter 3, hold your finger there and again go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We've been kind of using that as a, a launching point in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul's saying, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Verse 2, on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save. There's certainly no shortage of practicality in the Bible, especially in the New Testament writings of Paul. Although he gets pretty detailed in doctrine, he always gets personal with practice, always. When Paul applies the doctrines of Christ to our lives, he leaves no area unaffected. He leaves us with no good excuses to rationalizations, no options, just the responsibility toward obedience. Giving according to Paul is painfully, painfully practical. And this is how. Number one, it's systematic. It's systematic. On the first day of every week, Paul says, literally, the text says, on every first day after the Sabbath. In other words, every Sunday. That's what Paul says here, literally. How much more practical can you get than that? The day when Christians gathered for worship was Sunday. Also referred to in Scripture as, anybody know? 
the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. It all started at the resurrection, remember? Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. The very next Sunday, Jesus met with his disciples again. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, a pattern of meeting on this day had already developed and was foundational in the early church. And in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, the apostle John calls it the Lord's Day. The early church gathered on Sunday and Paul said that is when the collection should be taken, when it's most practical and when everyone came together to focus on Christ. Not only does the Bible imply that giving is systematic, but also that it's centralized. It's centralized. Verse 2 again. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save. The King James Version translates it this way. Lay by him in store, if you have a King James Bible. What's Paul really mean here? How are we to give? Do we start a little savings account that is specifically for the Lord and then we start funneling money, in, funneling money into it until a need arises and then we give from that fund? Or do we give it to the church and let them decide where it goes? I bet you've all wrestled with that question at one point or another. It seems that this passage of Scripture teaches us that primarily our giving is first and foremost, to the local church. Now, that doesn't eliminate the possibility of maintaining a special account to meet special spontaneous needs that arise. In fact, that is excellent stewardship. But that should not replace the regular and systematic pattern of giving to the local church of which you and I are a contributing member. We need to understand the concept of what Paul means by lay by him in store. The phrase lay by him or put aside basically means that you are to personally and privately determine how much you're going to give and lay it in store. Now to lay something in store in the scripture is very interesting. The word store is where we get our English word thesaurus. Anybody know what a thesaurus is? Probably all know what that is. A writer knows that a thesaurus is a treasury of words. The word store here carries the meaning of a storehouse or a receptacle where precious deposits are kept. Treasury. Now, the term itself says nothing about where that storehouse is, but we can get an idea from biblical history. In the early pagan and Roman temple, there were treasury boxes in which people would put their money. Later on, not only would these temples receive the gifts and the offerings of the people, but they also acted as banks to hold money for safekeeping. Back then, the safest place to keep your money was in a temple or in a church. How many of you would feel that the safest place to keep your money today is in a church? The temple of Jesus' day had treasury boxes into which people placed their gifts and offerings of money and other material goods. The idea Paul is trying to relate to us here is that our giving primarily is to be systematic and it's to be centralized. The offering, specifically the one that he was collecting for the poor saints at Jerusalem, was to be systematically planned for and centrally collected when the church gathered. And there's a reason for it. Paul says in verse 2, 
so that no collections be made when I come. You see that there? It wasn't to be a hurried or last minute thing. Was it supposed to be like a knee-jerk decision? Now let me ask you a question, and I may be preaching to the choir, but some of you may not have heard this before. Do you give systematically, thoughtfully, and responsibly? Do you have a plan? Or are you prepared when it's time to give, or is it more like, oh, the offering? Last minute thing, you grab your wallet, you fumble furiously, the closer the ushers get, the more frantically you search, and then you realize, rats, I only have a 20 and a couple of ones, so guess what goes in? <laughs> it reminds me of what Clara Null of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, humorously described. She writes, quote, for years we lived in a small town with one bank and three churches. Early one morning, the bank called all three churches with the same request. Could you bring in Sunday's collection right away? We're all out of $1 bills. <laughs> Incidentally, as a matter of trivia, I asked the person who does our deposits this question this week. What is the most common denomination of bills in the cash offering? Guess what the answer was? Ones and twenties. Interesting, isn't it? Ones and twenties. That is simply not the model of giving outlined in the Bible. Turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Look at verse 10 for a moment. Malachi says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this. I believe that it is our biblical responsibility to give systematically to the centralized local fellowship to which God has called you to be a member. The church which is led by a plurality of leaders and a conscientious finance team who seeks God's heart and then distributes the money as the Spirit directs them and as the needs in the community arise. That was the practice of the early church. Read Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. And that was the practice because it was modeled after God's pattern in the Old Testament. So, in the framework of God's pattern for giving, we find first that it is extremely practical. Secondly, in the Bible, we discover that giving, according to the Bible's pattern, is extremely personal. It's extremely personal. Back in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, it says, Let each one of you put aside. Let each one of you. That indicates that there are no exceptions. Each one of you. And it is every Christian's responsibility to give. If we have anything to our name, we have something we can give. And what we give is a personal issue between each one of us and God. 
You know what that means? That means two things. Number one, the amount of our giving is personally determined. Personally determined. No one else can decide for you how much to give. It's you and God. And right now I'm going to address what everyone has been waiting to find out. The most frequently asked question in churches about giving always arises, and here it is. How much do we give? Is it 10%? Is tithing a New Testament principle? And here's the second most frequently asked question in churches about giving. Should I tithe my gross or my net income? I'm not kidding you. This is reality. Should I tithe my gross or my net income? Here's the translation. How little can I give and not get God mad at me? In other words, how much of my stuff can I keep and not get in trouble? One author says that this is like going to your mom on Mother's Day and saying, Mom, what's the least amount of money I can spend on your present without severing our relationship? <laughs> Paul wrote more about giving than any other New Testament writer, and he never put a prescription on it. Never. Tithing is nowhere mentioned in reference to the church in the New Testament. Now, I do not believe that the biblical pattern for giving is as much concerned with percentages as it is concerned with the response of a loving and a willing heart. In fact, I believe tithing actually limits our giving and causes us to think that we fulfilled some sort of obligation. Friends, giving money to God ought not to be viewed as a debt we owe, but as seed that we sow. And the Bible says that we will reap what we sow. 2 Corinthians, turn there if you would. 2 Corinthians in chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, says this. This I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Biblical giving is an act of worship. A heartfelt response to the Father who loves us deeply and loves us intimately. A Father who would go the distance for us in anything and everything that we need. When giving is done with the right heart, it will always result in the right amount. The New Testament motivation for giving, friends, is grace, not guilt. Grace, not guilt. In a particular church, they had experienced such growth that 
It demanded that they enlarge their facilities, and this happens quite a bit. It represented quite a step of faith. But after much planning and praying and working together, they decided to erect a new church building, and it would be adequate for their expanded ministries. And so it was an exciting moment as together they came to the moment to begin raising funds for this new building with this multi-million dollar project. The pastor and the church board made their projections along with their appeal. They cast their vision to the congregation to share in this need by sacrificial giving. Everyone was challenged to be part of this, um, this giving, this project. After the service was finished, a lady came over to the pastor personally and handed him a check for $50 and asking him at the same time if her gift was satisfactory. And the pastor, his, his first reply was, if that represents you, it is. There was a moment or two of soul searching. She asked to have the check returned to her, and she left the building with it. A day or two later, she returned to make an appointment to see the pastor again. And this time, she handed the pastor another check, and this one was written for $5,000. And she asked him the same question again. Is this satisfactory? And the pastor gave her the same answer as before. If it represents you, it is. As before, the truth seemed to be sinking deep into her mind. And after some moments of quiet hesitation, she took back the check and left. Now the pastor was beginning to get a bit worried. <laughs> Perhaps he'd been a little too bold and he had offended her. And he also wondered if she would ever return. But about two weeks later, there was a phone call at the church office asking for another appointment with the pastor. And it was the same woman. And as before, she came in, check in hand, and a big smile on her face. This time, the check was for $50,000. As she placed it in the pastor's hand, she didn't ask him any questions. She said, after earnest, prayerful thought, I have come to the conclusion that this gift does represent me, and I am most happy to give it to the church for the new project. Would you like to know the secret to how to personally determine what you should give? Do a little soul check every time you give and ask yourself this question. Does this represent me? Does it accurately represent what my heart says that I am able to do as I trust and depend upon my Father in heaven? You ask that question and answer it honestly, and you won't have any problem with questions about amounts. Giving is to be done systematically, centrally, faithfully as we purpose in our hearts. And in this text, the word purpose used in verse 7 actually means to set aside beforehand again. Giving according to God's pattern is not an impulsive or casual decision, nor is it an emotional response to a need necessarily. It is the cheerful result of a planning, prayerful, and purposeful heart. It's personal. And the amount is personally determined. We find also that the act of giving 
is very personal and it's powerfully and personally demonstrated. It's demonstrated in that way. I want to tell you a little story about a young lady in our church by the name of Katrina Booth. Last year, she, when she was 10 years old, her parents were talking about the, the garbage guy, the trash guy that comes and praying for his salvation. They wanted to witness to him and stuff, but the guy didn't have a Bible and they were talking about getting him a Bible. Katrina heard all this conversation. She came one day and she asked, she said she wanted to save up her money to do something. And the booth said, well, what do you want to save for? Well, and she didn't want to say. Finally, they convinced her, saying, you know, we're not just not going to give you money unless you tell us what you're going to buy. So she finally relented and said, I want to buy a Bible for the trash guy. And so she began to save bottles and all the money that she could. Finally, she got enough money and she bought the Bible. By the way, parents said that they would buy the Bible so that she could give it to him. She said, no way. I want to do this. I want to save the money and give it to him. And so she collected up bottles and, and she did it. She bought him a Bible, which started this little Katrina Booth ministry, which we like to refer to as Bottles for Bibles. And that was just the first time. And then she did it again. And she started saving up bottles. And uh, on Halloween, she went around the neighborhood and gave a few Bibles out that they had purchased with Bibles that they had collected. They've sent some Bibles to Haiti, and now she's saving up for more and wants to make this her ministry. And so there's going to be a box out there in a learning center for Bi Bottles for Bibles. So if you guys want to support that ministry, I'm not going to blow it all. I'm going to have her stand up on stage and do the asking, too. She's a little nervous about it. But the point is, is that it was a powerful act of giving. And it's demonstrated, first of all, through sacrifice. Sacrifice. It's a little cartoon I ran across. It'll be on the screen. It's the, uh, the pig and the chicken, you know, look and help feed the hungry. We should donate some ham and eggs, the chicken says. Well, yeah, but for you, it's a contribution. For me, it would be a total sacrifice. <laughs> In 2 Samuel 24, 24, David said, I will not offer burnt offerings with, to the Lord which cost me nothing. You read that section in 2 Samuel 24 and see what David was doing there. Somebody was going to give him the oxen and give him the stuff to make this offering. And David said, no, I'm going to pay for it. I will not offer the Lord burnt offerings that cost me nothing. He didn't say, what's the least amount I can give and not get God ticked off? David's attitude ought to be the heartbeat of our giving. You see, God sacrificed his only begotten son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him might have everlasting life. If giving is a response to all that God has done for you and me, and we really understand all, that God has done for you and me. Then as Haddon Robinson says, there will be a red streak of blood in our giving. Is there a red streak of blood in yours? Or in mine? 
Do you give sacrificially? Now you might say, I don't have enough to rub two nickels together. How can I give? But when I give, it really hurts. Bob Richards, the pole vaulter, used to ask Olympic athletes, how do you handle the pain? And they never said, what pain? Instead, they simply explained that part of the thrill of victory is that it is gut-wrenching to achieve. Part of the thrill of our lives comes when we find a cause worth sacrificing for and then give to the hilt for it. What could be a better cause than advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ through the ministry of his body? I think the old cliche, give till it hurts, needs an overhaul. Our philosophy ought to be, don't give till it hurts, give till it feels good. Give till it feels good. I really think that deep down inside, people do want to give that way. They really do. And deep inside, they know that they should, but the numbers, the math stops them. Bill Heibel says they trip over the math. It doesn't make sense to believe that the first step to financial freedom is to give money away. But in God's economy, it works. He says, you trust me with your eternal destiny. You trust me for daily guidance and for wisdom. Now trust me with your money. I'm not going to let you down. Sow seeds of faith and I'll meet your needs abundantly. My God shall supply all your needs according to the riches and glory. His riches and glory, says Paul to the Philippians. He'll provide it all. Biblical giving is intensely personal. It's demonstrated through sacrifice, and it's also demonstrated through responsible stewardship. C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, that old very, very powerful preacher, told of a bankrupt man who said he had been ruined by a new sofa. Ever hear that story? It's almost happened to me on occasion. I wonder if it's happened to you. He was ruined by a new couch. The man explained that sofa was a bad beginning. It was too fine for me. It made my old chairs and table look awful, so I bought new ones. Then the curtains had to be replaced, and the furniture in the other rooms was sold, and new articles were brought in to correspond with what we had in that room. Soon we found that the house was not good enough for the furniture that we had in it. And so we moved to a larger house. And now here I am, bankrupt. I was ruined by a new couch. Are you in that place? Here is America's economic collapse in a nutshell. We are required to be responsible with what we have. One of the reasons many people feel they can't give at church is because they're overtaxed at home, overextended. Did you know that 85, I don't know how old the statistic is, I think it's fairly recent or fairly accurate, about, about 85 out of 100 Americans end up with less than $250 cash in their savings when they reach 65. During the years they work, they earn hundreds of thousands of dollars, but at retirement, they have very little to show for it. Do we really need to be living the way that we are living? Are you being faithful with what God has given you? See, the New Testament obligations are very clear. We must first provide for our family's needs, then support the ministry of the local body, and finally, we must provide for all men and women as we have opportunity. The biblical pattern of giving is demonstrated through personal sacrifice, responsible stewardship, 
sacrificial, responsible giving, and then it's demonstrated in intentional silence. We give sacrificially, responsibly, and silently. Matthew chapter 6. Turn there, if you would. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In society, people may give to an art museum, art museum to get their name on a plaque. Others give to a hospital to get the new wing named after them. Most give to charitable organizations in order to get a tax deduction. But in God's family, you give to please your Father in heaven. No strings attached, no eyes looking on. And that's it. What God wants is a cheerful giver who has purposed in his or her heart to honor God faithfully and generously with the first fruits of his or her wealth. God says, that's what honors me. That's what pleases me. So how are you doing? Does your way of giving reflect the biblical pattern so far? It's biblical giving is practical, systematic and centralized. It's personal. It's determined through planning, prayer, and preparation, and it's powerfully demonstrated through sacrifice, stewardship, and silence. There's more, however. The Bible says that giving is essentially proportional. Proportional. You may still be asking in your mind, is tithing the way that I should give? Some people say that it's not required in the New Testament, but is strictly relegated to the Old Testament. But what really is the right way to do it? The answer, again, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. As he may prosper. There's no set amount given here. We give as God has given to us. Everyone wants a percentage figure, but God doesn't make it that easy. He doesn't. But he wants us to be honest. And he wants us to give with a clear, a clean heart, a clear conscience, and a confident conviction. That's what he wanted in the Old Testament as well. And by the way, tithing in the Old Testament wasn't just 10%. Let me give you just a streamlined version of what Old Testament giving was like. Giving, Old Testament or new, has always been based on two principles. Old Testament or new. Free will giving and required giving. Those two things. Required giving in Israel took the place of and provided the same service as taxation. Before the Mosaic law, Abram tithed to Melchizedek. And that was his own choice. Nobody told him to do it, and there's no record that he ever did it again. In Genesis 41, 34, and 47, God commanded through Joseph that 20% be given by the inhabitants of Egypt to care for the needs of the people during the famine. 
It was funding the government to care for people. In short, it was taxation. That was before the Mosaic Law. From Moses to Jesus, required giving was instituted in the form of the tithe. However, it was not just a 10% flat fee. There were three different forms of tithes, or tenths is what the word tithe means. There was the Levite's tithe, or the Lord's tithe, which was 10% of the land, of the seed of the land, or the fruit of the tree. It was basically 10% of your first fruits, your produce. It was to care for the public servants and the priests. The second tithe was called the festival tithe. It was a 10% collection to fund the national feasts and holidays. Every third year, that second tithe, that 10%, was not brought to the sanctuary, but deposited in their towns to provide for the needy and to sustain the priests who had no portion or inheritance. That poor tithe was to care for the needy welfare cases. So, what am I saying? Required giving in Moses' time was not 10%, but actually 20%. All of them were simple forms of taxation so that Israel's nation could operate. Now, on top of that was a temple tax, a Sabbath rest for the land, which forfeited an entire year's worth of income. How would you like to do that? And the year of Jubilee, which set aside all debts that were owed every seventh year. Wouldn't that be great? Go and finance a car for seven years, and at the seventh year... It's all free. It's all returned. All of these things added up then. You know, a 10% tithe wasn't even close to what the nation of Israel was required to give. It was more like 25, 30%, even up to 40%. So if you want to go by law, 10% is not the deal. 10% is not the deal. And over and above that were various free will offerings in which the giver's attitude, not the amount, was the key focus. Required giving in Israel basically served the same purpose as taxation. In the New Testament, two principles apply. When the New Testament speaks about required giving, it is in the form of paying our taxes to the government. Romans chapter 13, you can read it. Pay your taxes. Giving to the church falls under the category of free will giving. Free will giving. And it's to be done as God has prospered us. But one thing is certain. The requirements of the Old Testament were merely a foreshadow of all that was to come in Christ Jesus. The law was only a pointer to a new order of life which finds its fulfillment in our relationship with Jesus Christ. The law declared that one day out of seven be holy to the Lord. The Spirit sanctifies today all seven of them. The law set apart one tribe out of twelve to be priests unto the Lord. The Spirit declares today that every believer is a priest. The law demanded a tenth part of the people's possessions. The spirit within us witnesses to the fact that we have become God's total possession along with all that we have. Everything belongs to him, not 10%, but 100%. We belong to God. We're simply stewards. 
who will one day have to give an account of all that we have and how we managed it for him. What will he say about our spiritual management skills? I've heard people say, if I had more, I'd give. Oh, is that right? The Bible's premise is that if you're not giving sacrificially and cheerfully of what you have now, you certainly won't do it if you have more. And statistics prove that. People under $10,000 make under $10,000 a year give an average of 17% to, their, to charitable organizations. People who make over $100,000 a year give an average of 2%. That math doesn't work out, does it? Luke 16.10 says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Howard Hendricks, in his classic down-to-earth manner, has a saying that cuts me to the chase. This is what he says. He says, It's not what you do with a million if a million is not your lot, but what you do with the buck and a quarter you have in your pocket. Now, that's what it's really about. That's what tells the real story. The question of the hour is, are we willing to give what we have, not what we don't have? God doesn't want us to give in proportion to what we don't have, only to what we do. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 12 to 15 says this in the Phillips version. The important thing is to be willing to give as much as we can. That is what God accepts. And no one is asked to give what he has not got. Of course, I don't mean that others should be relieved to the extent that leaves you in distress. It's a matter of share and share alike. At present, your plenty should supply their need. And then at some future date, their plenty may supply your need. In that way, we share with each other, as the scripture says, he that gathered much had nothing over and he that gathered little had no lack. Peter Marshall once said, let us give according to our incomes, lest God make our incomes match our gifts. Biblical giving is practical, it's personal, it's proportional, but the most important truth that you need to grasp here is that biblical giving is possible. It's possible. And one of the greatest examples of giving which reflects what honors God can be found in a woman that contributed only a fraction of a penny. By human calculation, it was absolutely nothing. Yet in God's eyes, in heaven's eyes, it was priceless. Jesus, as a matter of fact, singled this woman out as the gold medal winner of new Testament giving. Matthew, I mean Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. And he, meaning Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amounted to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of the contributors to the treasury. 
For they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned. All she had to live on. According to the rabbinic law, a giver could not give just one mite. It was not legally acceptable. The smallest gift permitted was two mites. And on that day for her, giving to God was more important than a crust of bread, a bit of honey or a sip of milk. Giving to God was more important to her than her necessary food. That was worship. That was her worship. Jesus jumped to his feet when he saw her contribution and he shouted to his disciples, mark this woman out. She's somebody special. I believe that God honors many people who are poor and don't give a tenth because what they do give is a sacrificial amount in relationship to what they earn. Similarly, for many wealthy people, giving a tenth is a way of robbing God, as Malachi says. Their tithe becomes nothing more than a tip. And it's not even a tip. And by the way, who are we to talk about giving God 10% when we tip waitresses 20? In this woman's poverty, she gave liberally, while others in their luxury gave superficially. And notice that Jesus was watching this whole deal. He was seeing the whole thing take place. Let me ask you a question. Would it change the way you gave if you knew that Jesus was sitting opposite you watching what you give? Because he is. He stares right past our hands and right into my heart. And he sees it all so clearly. He knows what he has freely given to me. He knows what he has given freely to you. And he knows whether or not we're freely releasing it back to him. See, because all of us are rich in comparison to somebody. Are we willing to invest what we have in eternity, like the widow? Because the bottom line is that it is possible to give according to the pattern outlined in Scripture because God promises it will be if we trust in Him, if we would just believe in Him. And that's the whole point of all of the preaching, whether it's on money or anything else in the Bible, is the bottom line is, will you believe in Jesus? And if you do, it's going to make a difference in every single part of your life. Malachi 3 verse 10 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. We're going to go to communion right now. It's a very difficult thing to transition from, from talking about money and giving into communion, isn't it? Not really. 
Not really. Because of one verse of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It all really boils down to your relationship with Jesus Christ and him alone. Jesus gave it all for you. How will you worship him in return? Let's prepare our hearts for this communion table. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your truth and your grace. You are full of grace and truth. And I pray that our hearts would be clear before you today. Thank you for expending all of yourself for, for me. When I had nothing to return to you other than my sin. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your incredible gift of grace. May you be honored as we share in this table together. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.